Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jackman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the AMR Studio after a short, short summer hiatus. Today, we are featuring an interview with Dr. Ursula Teurus-Bacher. She is the founder of the Center for Anti-Infective Agents, CEFAIA, and she is an independent scientist that works in a myriad of different collaborative projects and endeavors. You are going to hear all about that in the interview. Due to the social distancing issues, Jenny did this interview in 9th of June. You are going to hear that the sound quality is not as good as we are used to, but I hope that you stay with us because the content of the interview is really definitely worth it. We hope you enjoy. Hi, and welcome to this special interview with Dr. Ursula Teuritzbacher. Dr. Teuritzbacher, would you please introduce yourself to our audience and let them know what you've been working on? Yeah, hello, uh, Jenny, and thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm a microbiologist, and I've been working in, in the field of antibiotics all my life, and I've covered many different aspects um, during these years. So after my uh, PhD in microbiology, my thesis was about MRSA at that time, <laughs> uh, I had um, a short detour in the beginning, uh, in food microbiology. But this was really an, an uh, interesting experience uh, because it gave me some early insights in the One Health perspective. At that time, the term One Health was not even known. But it was, it was really interesting uh, <laughs> to think about bacteria and food. But that was just uh, one year. But I'm still benefiting from some of this early experience. It kind um, of frames your frames your thinking early on. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, all this connection between what we eat and antibiotics and and, and the connections came up also at that time. Mm. But of course, I mean, there was no awareness really about this one health perspective. Mm. But after this, this food microbiology sidestep, I spent some. Uh, years in uh, pharmaceutical industry at Beecham, Austria. That was um, a small company at that time. It's not existing anymore. It was later acquired. But it gave me great personal contacts to the researchers in the UK who discovered and developed the semi-synthetic penicillins and clavulanic acid. Mm. And that was really great. And I enjoyed very much these direct communications with these great researchers. So after that, yeah, I decided to become independent. And the main reason for this decision was that at that time, I didn't see another way to cope with family babies and the demanding work life. So yeah. I think that's a very familiar and it's still true today. And this was the beginning of my independent, self-employed professional life. You're currently an independent consultant. You've worked with many different yeah. projects from what I can, what I can see. Yes. I see myself more an independent scientist. Independent scientist. Yeah, that's a better yeah. phrase for it. Uh, because I'm really working in the academic environment. So the, this is very, very interesting. I've, I've moved from many areas and I've seen so many different fields, all in antibiotics and now, of course, resistance, uh, but very many dif- different fields from using of antibiotics to stewardship and guidelines and mm-hmm. evidence-based treatment and then later moved uh, to more the, the global perspectives and international collaborations and big projects back to discovery and development mm-hmm. of new antibiotics so my life is really reflecting the um, outside environment yeah, I was about to say, I think you've been an author on a lot of papers that we've brought up in our news segments before, and it's such it covers such a diverse level. I think the most recent one we covered was looking at uh, the IDA project, where we, it was the Colliston Pharmacokinetics, I think. Yeah, it was uh, one of my favorite projects so far. It was yeah. 
a big EU-funded project. And it was so interesting because it integrated so many different aspects. So it was really a redevelopment of an old antibiotic. Yeah. Um, I mean, colistin is very, very old. And at that time, we didn't know a lot of it. We didn't know how to use it. And really, there were so many gaps in our knowledge. And we, we grouped everything around a large, randomized, controlled clinical trial, but integrated all these in vitro works, in vitro models, PKPD models, and resistance development uh, yeah. work. So everything around this randomized controlled clinical trial, and we're able to also correlate in vitro or in vivo models with clinical outcome. And it was really very interesting and I enjoyed it very much. It was a great team, great scientists, great physicians. It was a really good project. I really found that like the the IDA project in general, this EU initiative project, it was very interesting. And I think one of those things that people tend not to really kind of acknowledge the importance of when we're working with old antimicrobials that maybe weren't used so much for one reason or another, but now in these times are being used more often, like really kind of looking into, okay, well, how can we improve this? How can we use these in the best way? If I understand the project correctly, I just, I thought it was a really, um, something that kind of becomes a gap a lot of the time. Yeah, we have, we, gap we, in knowledge. We, we began to reuse antibiotics, very old antibiotics, yeah. without really knowing how to best use them. And, and improving the usage is very important. So it makes a difference how you dose antibiotics. And if you have no idea, and if it's connected with toxicity, then of course it's very important to, to yeah. use the best way and all these improvements and and gaining new knowledge about old drugs is at least as important as discovering and developing new antibiotics yeah because these are drugs that are currently being used i mean this is yes current and we we had um uh, recently in in recent uh, years we had um several uh, new antibiotics that means these were all modified by drugs of old classes mm. that uh, became available. But what does it mean becoming available? They are not really available to most hospitals and they're mostly really not available outside the US, sometimes in Europe. So uh, most countries are still relying on old antibiotics. And these are good antibiotics, most of them. I would not say cholestine is, is a good antibiotic, but other. No, it has its issues. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, others were really good antibiotics. And it's so interesting to see that most new, really new antibiotics are struggling to show that they are not worse than the old antibiotics. So that just shows old antibiotics were good. And if we wouldn't have the resistance problem, they were still the best antibiotics. Yeah, it's, it's more a matter of finding replacements when, when we're having issues with resistance rather yeah. than that the drugs yeah. themselves are bad. Exactly. The, the drugs are mostly really good drugs. And it's hard to find new drugs that at least are not worse than the old ones. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a strange problem. I mean, it's something that we know about, of course, like we need more options because we're running out. I mean, if there's an infection where the bacteria is resistant to antibiotics, we need a different option. But it's hard because, like you say, they really aren't bad drugs. From what I've heard, penicillin is a very, penicillins in general, they're kind of intricate in a nice way. They're very, I mean, they're designed in such a nice way. It's targeting something that does. they don't have toxicity a lot of the time. It's yeah. very good target, very effective. It's just a matter of this resistance issue. Yes, I, I think that was just a, a major issue of the past that there was really no awareness of resistance because we yeah. had always was mostly about marketing and using mm-hmm. as many antibiotics as possible and benefiting from this golden era of antibiotics. Golden era means a lot of profit for, for companies. Yeah. And there were a lot of me too uh, products and it was just finding niches where they also could 
could bring a lot of money and there was no awareness also not among professionals yeah. uh, and if there was there was always one little resistance problem coming up and the industry found a fix so nobody cared yeah. uh, until they didn't find fixes anymore and until there was no money to make anymore because patent life expired for most of, of these big sellers and when there is no money in the field then there's no interest yeah. and then that stopped and we were not used to try to limit emergence of resistance yeah. so we were used and used and used overused and resistance increased and increased and that's when we came into these troubles yeah that's something we've seen with some recent antibiotics that have come to market that some of them are very unique there was plasmicin yeah, antibiotics in, in recent time, there were um, also modifications of class, yeah. like plasomycin, uh, the, the new drug of uh, the aminoglycoside class. Mm -hmm. uh, and these modifications and this optimization of old classes were targeted towards fixing, again, a specific resistance problem. Yeah. So they were mostly successful in fixing a very specific resistance problem, a class-specific resistance problem. But at the same time, and development is not a quick process, no. new resistances emerged. And <laughs> the new <laughs> antibiotics were, again, vulnerable. Yeah, and, and, and there so, wasn't really a market for it either, was it? There, there's yeah, an there's, issue with the financing. I mean, a lot of these companies yeah. that have brought up new antimicrobials to market struggle financially because they can't yeah. really get that payoff. Yeah. It can be a necessary drug that we definitely need. There, for certain people, it's crucial, but it just doesn't bring in this payoff. And, and the problem is resistance is less problem in rich countries. Yeah. So the countries that have the most resistance problems are countries with poor healthcare systems and small resources and of course they cannot pay a high price no. as long as uh, old antibiotics are available and they somehow still work then why should you buy a new very expensive drug that is only benefit to very very specific cases and situations and yeah. then into this whole topic of uh, diagnostics and you don't really know um, in most cases at least not immediately if you really need it or not so it's a, a very complex problem yeah. and then comes the, the whole financial and investor in environment and that has changed of course yeah now the, the whole pharmaceutical field is so used to get these really high profits out of pharmaceuticals I'm sure you have followed these discussions about personalized medicine and these highly profitable yeah. drugs. And this is standard. So if a big company has several fields in one company, then these fields are competing against each other inside one company the big international corporations mm -hmm. and of course the field with the highest profit will win yeah. and the other fields are shut down and that's exactly what happened so mm -hmm. the expectations of profit are much higher and are very high compared to other industries and then medical um, areas that don't generate this high uh, profits they are losing and it's not just antibiotics there are a lot of other medical fields that have the same problem. Like these kinds of orphan drugs that are maybe have really small markets, yes, but, but uh, and often maybe not first world countries, the richer countries that can really pay for these exactly. advanced medications. But I think they, they will finally overwhelm all healthcare systems and payer systems because mm. the trend is going into this direction. And if you have only these very extremely high price treatments, then it even will become not sustainable for no. most countries. So I think this trend that we have now is in general not sustainable no but of course uh, i mean we are suffering uh, the antibiotic field is also suffering from it but we are not the only ones no Right now, this recording is towards not in the middle of the worst of it, at least where we are maybe, but during the COVID-19 epidemic, do you think maybe these sorts of reminders of the importance of healthcare and the importance in many cases, not really complex treatments, but rather just good medical treatments, do you think this might help kind of bring back a little bit of this or pedal back a little bit from these really complicated personalized medicine treatments? Or do you think that it might go the other way? <laughs> I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, you know. You took it's, out, I had a more optimistic view that was what you just said. 
but I, I'm really not sure. So what I see at the moment is more the opposite, is that now it's everything is focused on, of course, uh, COVID-19. And there are so many new approaches and drugs and vaccines yeah. in development. And it, it's a pure race towards winning. And that means the highest profits. And also, mm -hmm. of course, public funding is now so focused on viral infections because they're, they're really threats uh, for, for, for public health. Mm -hmm. Resistance is not as such a public immediate threat. No, what we're seeing right now, I see of as kind of like a tsunami, like a, a very fast paced, overwhelming very quickly. Yes. While antibiotic resistance, I'd say is more of a very severe, but kind of slow flood. Yeah, it's more like climate change. Yeah, you, you, it's, this, <laughs> it's hard to get this, this really big push for something that takes yeah. so long. Yeah. but can have exactly as bad or worse consequences in the long run. It's, it's a very different reaction that people have to these kinds of problems, I see. Yes, and it's so complex. That's, yeah. that's the problem. It's not just finding a new antibiotic. It's the, the whole environmental issue. It's, it's stewardship. It's how to use antibiotics and the public health and epidemiology and, yeah. and, and ethics and ethics. <laughs> And uh, social sciences, behavior, and all these things, it's really complex. Yeah, very much so. So your perspective, your background is very microbiology-focused background, uh, focusing a lot on, from what I understand, the drug development side as well. You have a very broad perspective anyways. Now, talking to you, you have this very broad understanding of things. And I mean, from the, what you see, the papers that you've published and worked on, it's, I say this as a very, as a compliment, I think it's really nice to see that somebody has a very, such a broad perspective. How do you feel that you can use your microbiology background and really interact and kind of use your perspective with other perspectives as well? Do you, does it work well? Yeah, partly. <laughs> so <laughs> my interest is really a holistic one. So mm -hmm. including all these perspectives that I think are necessary to solve any complex problem. So how I approach it, it's too complex and of course too big for a single person, but yeah. at least I know a lot about it, but I cannot be uh, an, an expert in, in all these, these aspects. And, and that's the, the reason why I really like so much to work in international collaborative groups where all these aspects are brought in. Mm -hmm. And because in my experience from, from the past, whenever you look at a big problem from just one perspective, then it's a great risk of, of failure. And that's also true in drug discovery and development. If you have a pure uh, view from chemistry and are just looking from the compound and formulas and all these uh, things, then you're missing biology, you're missing yeah. bacteria, and you're missing the human. Mm -hmm. So all these translation steps are also very important. So I, I see really the future in integrating all these different disciplines. Um, yeah, we have done, I think, some progress, especially with this big EU project uh, and other big international and, and global projects and also some WHO projects. So I'm optimistic, but uh, it, it would be, of course, much, much better. And especially in, in the field of commercial aspects where it's still about only competition and confidentiality yeah. and keeping everything locked up. And of course, then, yeah, patent protection and not sharing mm -hmm. research and not sharing results and not learning from each other, but keeping everything secret but that's the commercial field and yeah it's very, kind of hard or i say with no experience but it feels like it's very hard to change such an established process yes. with the commercialization of drugs patent law and the whole economic framework behind it there have been some pushes lately or at least more theoretical discussions and i think a few pilot studies i think even i believe there's one in the uk i was talking about trying this this concept of decoupling sale volumes and profits so it's not about how much of the drug is sold yeah. but rather a, some sort of a netflix subscription kind of idea that you pay for access to the drug when you need it not exactly the amount of drug that's used yes yes i, I think that's a, a good fundamental principle and would at least be linked is crazy marketing uh, strategy yeah. to sell as much as possible and treat patients if they need it or not yeah. so at least i mean this was really the source of the whole problem do you think that these kinds of ideas would be well received do you think there's a future for these sorts of economic concepts that that kind of break the current mold 
I think there are a lot of, of still problems that are not appreciated enough. You can say that these are details, but just which antibiotic would deserve this public money? What characteristics do we need? Because there are so many new drugs in, in development and the public cannot pay these huge amounts of money for every new drug that's coming and there will be, would be a lot of misuse. So deciding which drug deserves <laughs> that, that's a very good point. I haven't really thought about that. I mean, I think it's the most crucial. And, yeah. and, and the main problem is if I would have to decide right now which one uh, should uh, really deserve such a big amount of, of public money, mm -hmm. it would be really difficult. Yeah, uh, a lot of these, just by the nature of how this happens, you kind of you find something that kind of works, you kind of improve on it. It's a whole yeah. process of moving forward, but it maybe wasn't the best initial thing. Or I mean, the, the thing that might become the best drug might not look that great in its first couple steps. And then it turns out to be very successful once it's developed properly. Right now, it's really the, the main problem is resistance and uh, having a new drug that's not as good as old drugs when there is no resistance is, is a problem. Yeah. And there's also a problem with resistance if you have just a modified a drug of an old drug because you will always have resistance from the beginning. Yeah. Because you are just fixing very uh, specific resistance problems and yeah. you're not fixing everything and resistance is out there already. Yeah, and then it's more a matter of, and in a lot of cases, it's a matter of the resistance mechanism adapting for this yes. adaptation. It's it's yeah, it's kind exactly. of like this this um, red queen thing where um, it's just a fight between, and everybody like both sides are improving. The drug improves a little bit. The resistance mechanism, the bacteria evolved to the, adapt their resistance mechanism that can combat that drug. I mean, it's yeah. and now I'm using a lot of very combative language, but it helps with the visualization that this is yes, yes a very continuous exactly process. What what happens, and it's not even that you start with no resistance, you start already with yeah. resistance bacteria. And so where, where is the threshold? Do you say, oh, 10% resistance doesn't matter or 5% or 20%? Mm. <laughs> I mean, if you take these measures, then you could go back to old antibiotics almost yeah. in, in most countries. So I think there are so many questions that are not solved yet, also for these new economic models. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been working in one of these EU projects that uh, was focused on this economic aspect, and we could not really come up with a model that was agreed from all stakeholders, including pharma industry, because yeah. pharma industry has completely different wish list, of course, and public health and the profit expectations from pharma industry is the contrary. It's difficult to, to find here a good solution that's good for everyone. Maybe it's not. Mm. Is this the Drive AB project that you're talking about? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think we've mentioned it before, but it's a it's very difficult to bring so much together into one project and really make improvements to really look forward. Yeah, especially if the goals uh, of the, also the individual partners is so different. Yeah. On one side, you have the pharma industry who has very specific mm. goals, of course. And on the other hand, you have academics who want really to get new, uh, nice publications or, I mean, they have different perspectives. Yeah. And bringing this together in highly commercial field, I think yeah. I would not do this again because I think in a scientific project, that's not possible to integrate. It's a high highly policy related topic yeah academics or physicians have just different goals yeah it's very hard to combine these things it's, yes. it's hard to find common ground yes well, this kind of goes into that. So we've talked about some things here that you're thinking missing in antibiotic resistance research. But is there anything else now that we're talking about this that you think of that if you had your own wish list of what we could do, what could exist? Uh, this would be long. <laughs> <laughs> we have mentioned one already. And this is this culture of commercial competition, confidentiality. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would really like to see a globally funded big project that brings together all these different research groups with one common goal. Mm -hmm. uh, something like CERN 
in in Europe or, the, or yeah. something that's something that's not profit oriented and just goal oriented. So that that's be <laughs> one of my wishes. And then of course coordinated and well funded research to support antibiotic drug discovery. So we are still struggling with a lot of scientific problems like uh, penetration of compounds into the gram negative bacterial cell. Yeah. And we need much more targeted research of translating in vitro studies, for instance, of emergence of mutational resistance to the clinical situation. So there's often these slight gaps between what's being done in the basic research yes. in, the yes. pre- in the early stages yes. and what we actually know about the drug and how it's working and how it's affecting patients and what can be improved. Yeah, It's hard to find somebody wants to pay for it and somebody wants to do for that, that, that sort of work, from what I understand, the, yeah. the, covering these gaps in knowledge. Yes, yes. And this translation is really tricky. Yeah. And especially if there are academics and companies involved, because uh, academic ins- institutions have academic goals. And and this is nowadays still having a a lot of of high-level publications. That's how they are measured. But uh, on the other side, you have the desire to bring a drug on the market. Mm -hmm. And that means, for instance, if you're working in in discovery, creating uh, hundreds or thousands of derivatives of elite compounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and, And that's not academically rewarding. No, you cannot write publications out of that. So <laughs> I think there's really it would need new ideas for supporting this translation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had some progress in last years. It's not that uh, there's nothing uh, here, but I think that could still be improved. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of what you see, what, what you want to see in this uh, in this field in the future is just a lot more finding common ground. Kind of everybody leaves a little bit of what they want from their perspective. I mean, academics want publications, companies want profits and drugs to yes. come out on the market and everything. Maybe if everybody could kind of meet a little bit more in the center, it sounds like yeah, that's... Yeah, it's uh, maybe a very... A tall order, but... <laughs> but the, in an ideal world, we can we can think about it. What, what would be best? So you asked me for my wish list. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I don't have put it into reality no of <laughs> course no and policy is i mean i've been really a lot in, in also in policy and i think my experience there but now i'm really happy <laughs> i'm focusing more on science again and mm. uh, that's at least for me it's better <laughs> yeah everybody has their what they what they like to work with the most it's good yeah, to yes. have that i mean i'm still very impressed you've worked with all these different parts i mean it's yeah. a very complex complicated issue like you say but you seem to kind of have you've had a foot in a little bit everywhere and it's very impressive yes i've done and i i think it was interesting mm-hmm. and at least i have a much better idea now what i don't like <laughs> that feels like an incredibly important part of personal development <laughs> yes, yes and i i'm very clear that uh, I don't want to have anything to do with this only strict profit-oriented yeah. And I'm much more interested now in public health matters and evidence and mm-hmm. ethics. I, I think that's uh, really enriching my life. Yeah. Uh, do you have any current projects that you're working on right now that you'd like to introduce to our audience, things that might be coming out soon? Yeah, I've done a, a lot with these EU projects and I've done a lot of WHO projects, all this pipeline analysis. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting what I'm doing right now, mostly. And that's partly because also the coronavirus crisis and projects did not do fine. No. <laughs> of this competition, viral competition. <laughs> yeah, everything gets a little turned on its head right now. Yes, but I'm doing a lot of evaluations, assessment of research projects. Mm-hmm. And these are usually government-funded, EU-funded, or academic-funded, or even from impact funds, are evaluating big research projects, mostly R&D projects, and really getting into details and trying to analyze them and then giving feedback. And usually and this happens also in, in groups of great experts and discussing this project, yeah. all the pro and cons and future aspects and coming from very different angles. It's so interesting. 
gives me these insights into so many different projects and now all this crazy stuff like phages and microbiome stuff yeah um, that's really it's really interesting and I, I just love this getting into scientific details even if i am not myself in the in the lab and i'm not doing it but assessing research uh, strategies and assessing these outcomes and of course also seeing all these challenges mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's really interesting and um yeah, and it, it feels like a very, a very good fit for somebody with your kind of diverse background and really broad perspective, because I mean, you have this interest, of course, in the science behind it, but you can also maybe kind of add in these other elements of, well, how this project works and these things and maybe give a little bit of feedback or analysis looking at the bigger context. Yes, how these projects fit in with each other. Yeah, and I think that's what I should do because there are a lot of really great experts around that can mm -hmm. look at their field. But having this broader experience and broader perspectives, I think, could bring a lot to projects. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. <laughs> I'm a little jealous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, there's a question we like to ask everybody that we interview, not entirely sure how to frame it for you. We usually ask if you find anything that something is misunderstood about your field. But in your case, your field is very broad. You've had a very broad background. You've worked with a lot of different targets and perspectives and that sort of thing. So I don't really know how to phrase this question for you. But maybe in general, with antimicrobial resistance research and that sort of thing, is there anything that you see as misunderstood by, I guess, other researchers, by the public, anything in particular that you think of? Uh, I, I think this broad perspective is, is, is really not appreciated enough. And I can mm -hmm. give you an example of R&D. If you start a discovery project and you don't see the entire path in front of you and you mm -hmm. don't see the challenges of biology and then all these in vitro and in vivo models and translating them to first use in humans and then uh, if you are not able to, to really visualize your clinical development path yeah. and not how to use this drug and if there's a need for it, yeah. then, then it's a, a high risk of failure. And I think that's maybe misunderstood in many cases that you need this broad perspective, at least in a team. Not yeah. a person, but in, in a team. No, no one person can play every part, but it, the, the perspective needs to be respected in yes. the whole team and the team as a whole. Yes, if in, in society or policy making, then really also understanding these tensions between treating an individual patient and public health hmm. perspectives and the profit generating industry. So yeah. these strong tensions are, I, I think, are the, the, one of the biggest problems that we have at this time now. And it should be very clear and not misunderstood. No, and very much respected and worked on. And it's somewhere we need to make some more progress, definitely. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably go ahead and wrap up the interview. So we usually also like to give you an opportunity at the end of the interview to say if there's anything in particular that you'd like to tell our audience, anything that we've missed to talk about or that you feel like you want to emphasize. I mean, I, I really like to communicate with young researchers. <laughs> and I would uh, like to say something to, to young researchers. I would say do what you are passionate about. Choose the best possible research environment mm -hmm. and say yes to good opportunities. And this is specifically for young women. Yeah. Sometimes and I, when I, I think back... <laughs> To my early career that was really these were key decisions in my life when i said yes to an opportunity despite feeling very insecure and not i didn't really want to do it <laughs> but i was just scared but saying yes to an opportunity when it comes up yeah, be uh, brave enough to take it on uh, by the horns i guess exactly and then hope to find a great mentor on your way and good luck. Luck is always something that you always also need. Yeah, uh, I think that's a great note to end on. <laughs> but I'd, I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. It was a great chance to see you. I know I 
got to talk to you a little bit more in person when we were in Gothenburg at the antibiotic resistance course there. But it was definitely a privilege to get to interview again now. You're welcome. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> Thank you. So welcome back. Ava, what did you think about this interview? I was really cool to listen to the interview. I was really looking forward to hear your conversations with uh, Ursula because first we actually were after talking to her for quite some time here at the AMR studio. She was in Uppsala for a couple of things we did with the, with the center, but unfortunately we were not able to talk to her. And it was really nice that she was able to take us on online virtually for this interview now during COVID times. She's an incredibly interesting person to talk to, especially in this area. I was like astonished of how much she has done when I got to know who she is and when we invited her for the, for the seminar. But now listening to her life story and all the different areas that she has moved through, all the different things that she has done, and the fact that she considers herself an independent scientist that is able to just you know, work in the things that she chooses to do and then be able to assess what things she feels more excited working with and what things she enjoys the most and then move her career through the waves of, of this area. It's beautiful. Yeah, the, the arc of her career, like up until where she is today, I think is so interesting because she's worked in, she started out in microbiology, like really in the natural sciences and then moved into, I mean, all these, like she's worked in stewardship and drug discovery and economic, like she's touched on all these things. And now she's kind of decided, well, this is what I'm most passionate about. This is what I like the most. And I'm going to work in this. And I just, it's nice to hear that somebody's actually done that. <laughs> and I, I think it also, she pointed out really nicely that even though she might have worked in things that are not exciting for her as the things that she's working on now, they have given her a very good stance and perspective for working now and what she's working with. So all yeah, that experience is definitely worth the while and worth the time and it has made her a very round scientist and a very knowledgeable person in the topic yeah I didn't get the impression that she regretted anything it was just that it's like this is how she got to where she is now and working with what she likes and has actually made that decision that I'm just going to do this stuff that I like mm -hmm. that I'm interested in and that's yeah. that's pretty impressive as it is and I also think that is very commendable that she spends a part of her time now evaluating and being a reviewer for projects, especially, you know, early on projects in this area, because I do think that it's important to have people in the development of these projects that are able to see clearly what things might work, what is the potential of things, and if things are really not as good as they should be to move forward, to kill the projects. This is something yeah. that we as scientists are always very keen not to do because even though we pride ourselves to be objective machi machines that we look at the things in the data and the truth is in the data we are humans and we get attached to our projects and we put a lot of time we put our careers on them and it's hard to let them go but I think it's good to have people like Ursula that has vast experience and is going to also not be shy on telling you this will work, this will not work. Maybe you should focus on this, move your thoughts this direction. So I am very happy that, that she assists. <laughs> but also like, I mean, she can say like, okay, this doesn't really work because like it, it seems fine on its own, but you're not thinking about this other thing, like this whole other part. It's not going to work in the, in the big picture thing because. And it's so beautiful how she as a professional fits so well with the idea that we have at USC, you know, that the idea that of creating these scientists that are able to see the different angles and aspects of a specific complex topic like antimicrobial resistance. So in an essence, she is the image of what we think a lot of workers in this area should have because it's such a complex thing that when you are preparing projects, you are going into a specific area, you might not have consider this other aspect of this other point of view and if you are being trained in this more multidisciplinary and uh, multi-angle situation then you are going to be able to see it and I'm not saying that you should not have on your team also people like her or consultant consulting what what the projects are going to go about and all that but I think that there is a value for every researcher to have a little bit of this way of being so to speak. Or at least like a respect for what you know and what you don't know, like when you need mm. to maybe ask or mm -hmm. consider somebody else, like what you need to bring in and just to see beyond your own lines, even if you can't solve those problems or 
think of those issues, you mm-hmm. can just at least know that there's something there. Mm-hmm. From the interview itself, uh, there is maybe a couple of things we can mention. Yeah, there's a few um, kind of updates and just like little things I wanted to throw in. Uh, we did one thing that we did mention briefly was the drug plasmicin. So we talked about how uh, in in depth in the interview, we talked about how new antimicrobials maybe aren't going to market or their newer antibiotics are pretty much only coming out in the US in these bigger markets where there's more money to be spent, but they aren't needed there and whatnot. We've talked about plasmicin before on this show and we mentioned it in this interview, but just as an example, recently in the last month or so, plasmicin was announced that it, it's not going to be launched in Europe or in the EU. Uh, they're not going for approval in the EU just because it hasn't sold well, basically, for what I understood. Yeah. That was the reason why they're not going to launch it in the EU. It's kind of, it's stupid because it's a good thing that it hasn't sold well. I mean, yeah. But, but at the same time, it also makes sense that then you don't launch it because they're not making money. They're not yeah, making the profit. We, we can link this a bit to, I found very anecdotal, her point of commenting that there was a time where actually selling antibiotics was something profitable and it was something that companies were kind of fighting to get into. Yeah. Like companies were trying to find an edge into this drug or this type of antibiotic because there is money into the market. And it's just so crazy to think that the situation we are in today is just completely diametrically opposite. But now even that you have a drug already that is there, you know, like you only need to yeah, put... You know it works. You know there's a purpose for it. It doesn't even get to the point where that's worth to do, which is yeah. just like, boom. So... This is once more an example of how we need to find a way to change how the system works specifically for these kind of drugs. You guys talked a little bit that she was part of the Drive B project, this big European uh, consortium or effort to try to find new models for antibiotic research and development. Yeah. Uh, we just wanted to mention that we did briefly talk about that in another episode, but just say that, <clears throat> yeah, what this uh, Drive B project was looking into is can we actually find new models that would equally be accepted by the private sector and the public sector that is going to help bring in new drugs into the market? And like she mentioned in the interview, there were issues trying to get everyone's interests into the table and finding a way to move forward, having both the private sector and the public sector into consideration. And I do think that some partners in the consortium pull away before the project was finished because of this situation so this just illustrates how hard it is to work in this and how important is that like you guys say that everybody thinks a little bit away from their own belly buttons and try not to get too much personally out of it and just Mm -hmm. just give in give 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 like yeah so i did really like one thing that Dr. Turetzbacher threw in at the end, which was uh, talking to young researchers about, you know, being brave enough to take that opportunity and to to go for it, basically, and to do what you're passionate about, which obviously, as we mentioned in her career path, she's gotten to what she's passionate about now to really focus on that now. But I just think it's nice to hear from somebody that it really is important and to find a mentor and all that stuff. It's always nice to hear from somebody who's been there and experienced that to see what they did and what they needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, having been there as a PhD student, and it's really invaluable to have someone that you can rely on and that you look up to, and that they are gonna also be able to put your feet in the ground. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. you know, it's uh, it's important to find those kind of people in your career, definitely. Yeah. Um, and with that, then the last thing that I want to mention from the interview that is going to link now with the news section because we're gonna talk a little bit more at length in the news section about this. Ursula said on her wish list, which I really like that we uh, ask people what are the wish lists because we can hope and we can wish, of course, <laughs> is the, that she was hoping that maybe someday there will be some big global project that is completely non-for-profit that is going to, you know, bring money into this very, very needed area. And we have good news for you guys there. Very recently, there's been a new launch of precisely that, a fund, a non-for-profit fund, collaborative project from many companies around the world with big, big numbers and big, big hopes. And we're going to talk a little bit more in detail. What are they looking 
for? What are the goals of this uh, new fund? And a little bit of what can we expect to come in the coming months and years from it in the new section. So we see you there. Welcome to our new section. Today we are going to try to keep it short because we had a somewhat long interview, so we don't want to keep you here forever. But we're going to talk about two different themes, some pretty recent things and very interesting topics. One of them, as we already introduced you a little bit in the commentary of the interview, is the creation of a new global AMR action fund. Can you tell us a little bit about it, Jenny? So in general, this announcement was very big and very, I mean, it's a huge step forward. It's several different pharmaceutical companies going together to uh, produce a fund, a fund of $1 billion, which is going to work to help antibiotics get through the clinical testing process, which is one of the big downsides right now. So Ava, can you give us some more details about this announcement? Yeah. So this announcement was done globally actually on July the 9th and it was done through three nearly simultaneous online events one in Tokyo one in Washington DC and one in Berlin so for all the kind of the main three time zones and it was the presentation of yeah of this AMR action fund which was uh, arranged by the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Associations which is uh, more than 20 big pharma companies altogether it's a concept developed of them together with the WHO, the European Investment Bank, and the Wellcome Trust. The idea of this fund is, yeah, as you said, pulling together up to $1 billion of money with two main goals uh, inside. The goal number one would be to actually, like you said, bring two to four antibiotics through phase two and three for approval into the market by 2030. That's a big goal for 10 years time. That's a huge goal. And the second goal, which would be kind of like a side goal, let's say, of working on this, would be to create market conditions that enable sustainable investments on antibiotics. These two are very tied together because, um, as it says, this money is specifically for phases two and three, which bring the new drugs into the market. But as we know for recent events and what's been happening in the market of antibiotics in the recent years, it's not enough with bringing these drugs to the market. There has to be some incentives, there has to be an economic model in place that can sustain those antibiotics in the market. So the goal is not only to bring them, but somehow create the ecosystem and the conditions that will actually get them to be in the market for a long time and to be able to be used when they're needed. We tend to use the phrases push and pull incentive. So this is a push incentive, pushing, like figuratively you're pushing the antibiotic through the testing process to get it to market. But this is lacking a pull incentive, which is what this other second indirect goal is, is that we need to really make it sure that when these antibiotics come to market, the companies that bring them through are not going to fail because of a market that just doesn't work for antimicrobials. It, mm-hmm. it needs to be, there needs to be some setup, some economic functioning process that makes it possible for these companies to survive and we're not overusing these antibiotics at the same time. That would defeat the whole purpose. Yeah, so it's been debated and talked about a lot that these pool incentives should perhaps come from, you know, governments and more public entities in the different countries. And it's been a little bit of a hesitation to get into these big commitments because, you know, yet we are not there in place. We have not really seen how it will work, what are the consequences. But the fact that a lot of the people involved in, you know, governmental and public finances were present at the presentation of this fund means that there is some sort of idea to get into working together to make the market a better place for antibiotics. Can you tell us, Jenny, what is the difference between this AMR Action Fund, new AMR Action Fund, and some other of the key players that we know they assist already on on bringing money for antibiotics like Carvex or the Novo Repair Fund? Yeah, so if you use, for example, Carvex as an example, they focus more on up until phase two. So they're handing over the company kind of back to the company before phase two. And that's really trying to focus on getting drugs through the preclinical process and through phase one, which kind of leads you to a, a, a very good candidate at that point. You have a good candidate when you're out of phase one if, it, if it's passed and everything looks good. But it's the cost of running phase two and phase three trials is huge. And a lot of these small companies, even if Carbex has helped them through the beginning, Carbex or another entity has helped them through the start phase, 
they can crash and burn in phase two and three based solely on funding. And this is kind of helping fill that gap where now these private pharmaceutical companies largely are coming in and helping to fill that monetary gap pretty much and say that, okay, well, now we're going to help with phase two and phase three trials. And this kind of symbolizes that these companies understand that for some of their medications as well, that they're producing, for example, anti-cancer drugs and other things like that. These are really necessary drugs. They can invest this money and get a benefit out of it as well. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not making the antibiotics or, or developing or researching to produce the antibiotics themselves. Yeah. So, and it's also important to note that this investment fund is actually a non-for-profit investment fund. So the idea yeah. is not to actually get a return on investment directly, like the way that companies normally put money into projects, but this is a non-for-profit fund that yet we don't know how the money is going to be used. They just committed that this $1 billion is going to be available for these goals over the next 10 years, but we still don't know how that money is going to be kind of spread or divided or given to the companies or to which companies. We need to keep an eye on and see how how this develops. It's pretty exciting. I know that a lot of the people that are very important in the AMR world are very excited that this is happening, that the big companies are stepping up and they are working together in this very global push. I would say, yeah, to yeah. for the markets. And we are going to leave you guys uh, some links in the show notes and also the link to the fund itself. So you can register on their newsletter and you can get direct information when news and how they are actually going to put the money out comes as a public information. Yeah. We have another article that we'd like to introduce, which is a little bit different from some of our regular stuff. Uh, Ava, would you mind introducing this article? Yes. So this article is by an author that we have already covered some news uh, before. Uh, Her name is Eva Kroko from the University of Leicester. And she has published very recently, so recently that it's actually not officially published. It's going to be part of the September uh, issue of YAC Antimicrobial Resistance, the Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy. And it's a little bit of a review of a opinion, article, and suggestions, let's say, with the title Nomen Est Omen, Why We Need to Rename Antimicrobial Resistance. This is a topic that we keep bringing up in the podcast, and it's a topic that really touches dearly and close because we have, you know, AMR in our title, and also because we work a lot with antimicrobial resistance communication, which in itself it's the core of antimicrobial resistance. Is this something that we can communicate or not? Yeah. And whatever does in this uh, review article is to talk about the need to rename antimicrobial resistance and AMR. And this is something we already know that it doesn't really work properly, right? But what yeah. I love about this article is that she actually is giving you concrete reasons why antimicrobial resistance is not a good term for the topic that we have at hand. Yeah. And very, I mean, not just, oh, it's maybe doesn't cover exactly what we wanted to cover. It's very like down to like the linguistics and how do you, how do you get somebody involved, engaged from a phrase? So what uh, have we learned by reading this article and what are the main conclusions? So Dr. Coco discusses different psycholinguistic parameters. So basically like how do people react to a phrase? How How do you understand it? How do you get engaged? So she talks about something called intensity. So the potential potential to engage an audience, which includes pronounceability and meaningfulness, specificity, and a few other factors, and kind of how this translates into what she describes as fluency. And, but I I quote here, she says, the subjective feeling of ease experience when processing a stimulus such as a written word, often related to shorter reading or response times. So a lot of this kind of, it's not just what the meaning of the word is, that's definitely a big part of it, but it's also the actual structure of the word or phrase, like how does this work? Is this something yeah. that's easy to, or she, she kind of tones this down into three main, three categories of properties, I'd say, mm-hmm. which is pronounceability and readability. So can people pronounce it? Can people read it? Meaningfulness, concreteness, and memorability. So does it mean anything? Does it really say what you're trying to say and whatnot? And as the last category, specificity or uniqueness. So you're not you're not overlapping with other terms. You're not it, it means what you're trying to say and it's specific. I think and then she goes on and then she actually examines the term antimicrobial resistance under these three categories yeah. to come out to the conclusion that it's actually not a very good choice. Like in, she's, in any category. In any it's category, like, not actually. In all categories. Yeah. So it's it is a high word length. It has nine syllables, which is considered long. 
-hmm. It's difficult to pronounce. By the way, can we say how difficult to pronounce pronounceability is? Because yeah. I thought it was a little bit like, <laughs> I kept like pronounceability that I don't think I know how to pronounce properly. Um, <laughs> and then it also uh, says that antimicrobial resistance has infrequent work components. And this is something that it can just be objectively measured if antimicrobial resistance is made of syllables and components that are not so common in the language. Yeah. It also says that it has no intuitive meaning because of its highly scientific terminology, which is true. Because yeah, we're talking about meaning for, for layman, not meaning yeah. for, I mean, if you're working in the field, then obviously it has meaning, but mm -hmm. we're talking about meaning for everybody. It also talks about the lack of urgency conveyed in the term itself. And last but not least, it's very important that it's actually not specific at all because antimicrobial resistance it also includes antifungal resistance and it includes antibiotic resistance and this is the the mm -hmm. kind of catch 22 that we continue to talk about like yeah antimicrobial it includes antibiotic but are we talking about antibiotic resistance now and antimicrobial mm -hmm. resistance like antibiotic resistance tends to be the big thing but we you still need to care about antifungal and antiviral exactly. and all this other stuff like it i found it really beautiful that she's able to say like okay yeah we know it doesn't work but why does it not work and then once you we know that we can maybe do something to change it yeah. apart from that she of course says that furthermore after antimicrobial resistance is difficult and it doesn't cover all these categories that it should cover to be easy to remember and to be impactful once we even channel it down to amr it's even more difficult because amr can mean many other things amr would mean nothing to you if you don't know what antimicrobial resistance is i think she has four examples of other meaning like what amr can mean in different contexts yeah completely different things yeah. that i don't even remember because they were like out i think one was like there's a name it's very similar to an and arabic, an Ar man, arabic male, male name. name yeah that's yeah. what <laughs> so the only thing I was kind of missing is that in the end of the article to have some suggestions about what names could actually work. Because yeah. you and I, we were talking before like COVID-19, right? That it all, mm -hmm. it all types and, out and to Dr. now. Dr. Coca yeah. also compares to the COVID-19 naming and other diseases and such. So that's something she discusses in the paper. Yeah, that's how the paper actually starts, that you know from Wuhan, novel coronavirus, mm -hmm. the WHO decided to actually give a name like COVID-19 yeah. uh, because it's you know shorter, easy to remember and so on. It's easy to pronounce. It's easy to pronounce. And I was also thinking, okay, but COVID in itself is nothing that people can relate to from before because it didn't exist before. It does not have components of anything that can be meaningful to them. But of course, it's been there out there all the time. So now it cannot be confused with anything. Like COVID-19 yeah. is COVID-19 and it's super specific, easy to pronounce. It has all these kind of characteristics to make it a good communicative term. We talked about that this only is the case because COVID-19 pandemic was something that happened so fast like there's no way you haven't heard about it there's no way you haven't heard that the name is COVID-19 and the microbial resistance if we're going to use that phrase is very slow going I mean it's very serious but as you said before you know you not only have to change the name but then you have to teach everybody what this is because they're not going to find out on their own that's not going to affect their life directly probably not hopefully not going to affect their life directly right away but they need to know about it before it does we need to do something about it before it already affects them. So we have the challenge of, we, we don't have the benefit of the phrase will get meaning through its importance, unfortunately. Immediately at least. No, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It has to have meaning before so that we can talk about how important it is. But I definitely agree that we could be doing better in finding a term that we can give the specificity to yeah. and that we can teach the people what it means without having to be anything else. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if an acronym, like, because for example, COVID is like coronavirus, disease, yeah. type of thing together. I was just like, for fun, like writing words down in my notebook, like, uh, difficult treatment by resistance or resistant complication effects can we make a word that would be from those things and then it would be just one word like i don't know recoffe or something like that that then we can give only to this specific thing would that actually be useful how would we go about it so i i thought it was a fun thought experiment but i keep falling like getting stuck on the problem that this is a quite scientific term and I know I'm probably biased because I come from this problem from the scientific perspective but it's really hard when they say like oh but you need a specific unique phrase but it's we're talking about so many different things and they have different problems right mm -hmm. so 
can we really find a phrase that covers everything is unique and easy to understand? Well, I think in that case, we could just make a word. And then we teach everybody that that made a word is this thing. Uh, that's going to be the rest of our lives right? is teaching like, right. people what this is. <laughs> no, I no, mean that I... this is the only way that you can take away the scientific component of yeah. the and the unspecificity of the term that you are using, right? Yeah. But you still you still kind of get stuck on the, you still need to teach people the scientific component either way to, to fully understand it and to understand well it. but isn't it the same thing with COVID-19 as well I know that we are very early on and we don't know a lot of the scientific basis or we don't have so many scientific truths about how the, this virus infects people or potentially yeah. kill people or spreads but at least people are conscious that it exists right so of course it's going to be a scientific component I agree but I think at the same time like if we also use um Another example that Dr. Krokot talks about is the uh, climate change mm -hmm. and the change to maybe saying uh, global heating or climate disaster or something instead. I think that's an easier phrase to understand and people see climate change a little bit more. We see, you know, there's an increase in severe weather and mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of easier to tie into your daily life. It's, there's going to be a huge challenge of finding a phrase that describes the urgency and the problems that we're facing with when you we, when we have to do something about it before it really becomes a daily life problem for most people i guess it's, yeah. i guess it's the same argument for climate change we're a little bit late as it is but i don't know i, I i'm a little pessimistic but i like the the i like the challenge i like the thought challenge <laughs> and i hope we can find a better phrase because we had this discussion when we made the the title of our podcast <laughs> was what are we going to call <laughs> and we did choose the AMR, which, you know, has its issues. Yeah. Definitely. But at least, you know, the AMR studio, it is the AMR studio. We're highly specific. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with that, news or updates about what's upcoming with the UAC is that we are going to go back to having seminars. And all these seminars are actually going to be also available to join remotely. So every one of you that are listening to this, you are going to be able to register and attend remotely these seminars if you are interested. So keep an eye on our website. And we are also continuing with our podcast once a month, first Monday of every month. So don't forget and join us. Thank you so much for being with us this month. See you soon. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.